Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, June 13th, 2022. On the show today, we've got news, listener questions, and surveys. Then in our main segment, Jim gives us the history of what was almost built at Fort Wilderness after Pioneer Hall was built back in 1974. And Hoop-dee-doo reopens this month in Walt Disney World. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says his wife was shocked to find out he's a bad electrician. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Electricity jokes aren't funny at this house this morning, Len. <laughs> That's right. You you lost power this morning, right? We did. In fact, yesterday, we had Eversource, our local power company, in our driveway, cutting down trees to make sure that branches would not fall on the lines. We got a little rain this morning, and boom, no power. <laughs> but you've recovered. The recovered is, is you know, again, I, I need my coffee, Len. Damn it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was uh, uh, every, every day when uh, every every day that we record, I'm uh, I'm waiting for the email that begins with the phrase "moose emergency" <laughs> from you. That's just a, so you know. Well, we had a bear on the porch just this week, so you put up bird seed, and it's like, wow, look, a grackle in a bear suit. <laughs> grackle in a bear suit. It's the name of my upcoming studio album. All right, fair. There we go. <laughs> Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Chad Swanson, Jessica Jingle Ingle, and Bridget Hurley. And longtime subscribers, Aaron Westendorp, Torin and Heather, and John Malone. Jim, these are the townspeople who live outside the Castillo del Moro in Walt Disney World's Pirates of the Caribbean ride. They say that the daily bombardment is just something you get used to. And besides, the schools are great. The weather is fantastic. And construction jobs are always plentiful. True story. They seem a little obsessed with chicken, though. <laughs> Every town has its quirks, Jim. You know that living in a small town in New York. Oh, there we go. All right. Let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, a couple of uh, news tidbits mm-hmm. this week. Uh, number one, Finding Nemo, The Big Blue and Beyond. Opens today, June 13th at Animal Kingdom. So we'll have a review of that shortly. Also, uh, minivan service returns to Walt Disney World June 29th. I think you and I talked about this because a couple of weeks ago when I was meeting Chrissy at Disney Springs, mm-hmm. we noticed pairs of minivans driving around on Buena Vista Drive, presumably doing some sort of training run. Makes sense. Okay. Also, over at Disney Springs, a new restaurant has been announced called Summer House on the Lake. And this is by the same group that runs the restaurant named Beatrix, mm-hmm. which, Jim, I think, what year was it that, that Beatrix was announced? Was it 2019 or 2020? I want to say, say 2019, but obviously 2020 derailed a lot of things. Right. Uh, and they had recently, like in the last year, renewed the building permits for Beatrix, the restaurant. But now it looks like now that that's not going to happen. The um, So the new restaurant, Summer House on the Lake, mm-hmm is a California-inspired restaurant with salads, sandwiches, pastas, pizza, vegetables, cocktails, mocktails, wine, and draft beer. So it looks like something for everyone there. We'll see when uh, when that opens. I'm hearing 2023, obviously. Okay, makes sense. Awesome. Cool. All right, Jim, time for some listener surveys. Uh, this one from Justin. And this is interesting because it, does, it, uh, it contains a question that I've never seen before. So Justin went to Animal Kingdom recently and got this survey. And the question is this. Please take a moment to review the following terms that could be used to describe attractions at Disney's Animal Kingdom. 
So they want to know like how you, what, which of the following words you would associate with attractions in Animal Kingdom. The first one is iconic, which is a classic. The park would not be the same without this attraction. So that'd be something like Kilimanjaro Safaris, I would think. Personal favorite. My perfect day would definitely include this attraction, right? Immersive, able to, quote, live the story or be absorbed in the environment. Boring, uninterested and feels like a waste of time. Dated, which means not relevant or in need of refurbishment. Insensitive, Ooh. perceived as disrespectful to some audiences mm -hmm. or not familiar with this attraction. And then there's a series of questions based on the attractions that Justin visited saying, uh, you know, which of these terms, if any, do you feel describe the attractions listed below? So that's interesting, Jim. I've never seen Disney asking people if an attraction is boring, dated, or insensitive. What's, uh, what's driving this? This is like giving somebody a golf bag with a baseball bat in it. <laughs> I mean, the first ones are good. Right? Uh, no, no, no. We, we can all agree. Yeah, we can all identify the iconic attractions in a park mm -hmm. and the personal favorites. But boring, dated, and incentive, that's literally half the, half the adjectives. Yeah, but Disney writes a survey with an intent in mind. And Joe Rohde, the mastermind behind Animal Kingdom, has been out of the company for 18 months, two years at this point. And mm -hmm. Joe was the one who was very vocal about things to the effect of, you know, Zootopia does not belong in Animal Kingdom. That That's not... Right. And it just... I look at something like this, and it's just sort of like, when you put boring, dated, and insensitive on the table, table you're looking to make some changes yeah that's <laughs> those are those aren't the uh, the words that promote the status quo no no <laughs> not not at all holy cow okay i'm just kind of shocked to see a survey go out that you know i mean lately we've seen a surprising number of brutal surveys oh yeah somebody's pushing for change at the parks and being not exactly subtle about it Oh, that's a great way of, uh, of putting it. I mean, there, there, there must be some internal faction within the parks that are like, yeah, you know, revenue's up. And I know that's the thing that the, executive always, the executives always focus mm -hmm. on. But there's definitely a group within Disney mm -hmm. who is reading the tea leaves about things like Genie Plus mm -hmm. or lack of uh, new attractions or lack of maintenance and are trying to put together a case mm -hmm. for change. So whoever you are, you're doing God's work within the company. There we go. But, but holy cow, day, boring, dated, or insensitive. In insensitive. Wow. Yeah. And, your, right. and your baby's ugly, too. <laughs> yeah, and your mother dresses you There we go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Here's another survey. It's a universal survey from a Touring Plans member named Thorcat asking about a potential new kind of shopping pass. And by the way, Jim, the survey begins with a standard, uh, you agree to keep this confidential clause. And let me remind everyone that Universal knows that's not a binding agreement. In order for it to be, you'd have to get something of value in return, like money or park tickets. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, it's a scare tactic. And, and I mentioned this because there's another survey after this one that actually has something of value in return. So we'll talk about this one first. Mm -hmm. So the Universal survey uh, begins this. Uh, this next section will ask you about a new benefit that Universal Orlando is considering adding for their annual pass holders. The passholder team is thinking about this new benefit, the Universal Shopper Pass, which would offer passholders some perks when purchasing merchandise. The Universal Shopper Pass would include a 10% discount on merch at Universal Orlando and shop.universalorlando.com, a free seasonally themed lanyard for per year, mm -hmm. exclusive member shopping events, 
an exclusive access to the Universal Orlando Garage Sale. By the way, Jim, does, does Universal Orlando actually have an annual garage sale now? Yes. Now, mind you, it's one of these things that typically they only make available to Universal team members. Ah, okay. So this is sort of like cast connection? Yeah, yeah. So, okay. I mean, Over that's Disney. a cool perk in and out of itself. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know a number of people, and only one of them named Derek Bergen, <laughs> who would love access to that sort of stuff. Absolutely. The, uh, the next question is, uh, the Universal Shopping Pass would be included for free. With your annual pass, how interested would you be in having this included? So very interested, interested, not interested, or uninterested, and so on. Mm -hmm. The next question would be, if your Universal Orlando annual pass did include this Universal Shopper Pass, on how many of your next six visits would you spend more than $50 on merchandise? And the options are one, two, three, four, five, or six or more mm -hmm. visits, or six visits. Or I would not spend $50 on merchandise. So, Jim, I think they're trying to figure out here what the potential revenue would be. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. But at the same time, when you think about the number of folk, how many people are going back to Universal these days just to see what's in the Tribute store? And that changes out at least four times a year now. Yeah, and that's good. Mm -hmm. I mean, variety, especially in things like that, variety is key, mm -hmm. right? It's got to keep people coming back. Yep. The survey also includes this question, and I'm interested in your take on this one, mm -hmm. Jim. Below are some of the annual pass holder benefits that you receive, including the Universal Shopper Pass. Please select three benefits that are most appealing to you. And by the way, Jim, there's a corresponding question that says least appealing as well. Mm -hmm. So keep that in mind. Admission to the pass holder lounge. And I got to admit, as a pass holder, I've never been in the lounge. Mm -hmm. Discounts on food, merch, and specialty items. Discounts at CityWalk. Discounts on tickets to Halloween Horror Nights. Discounts on Universal Orlando Hotels. That's got to be number one for me. Mm -hmm. Universal Shopper Pass, early park admission, that's in my top three. Low monthly payments with the FlexPay option. Access to in-park special events and concerts. And discounts on general admission tickets for friends and family. Thanks again to our pal BioReconstruct, who mm -hmm. regularly flies over the Epic Universe construction site. We, we are watching steel go up at that park. And as we're getting the third gate up out of the ground, a fourth if we, we count Volcano Bay, the pass holders lounge has always been something of an afterthought. Like I said, I've never, I've never been there. Well, that's it exactly. On the other hand, were they to create for Epic Universe a killer pass holder lounge, something centrally located with great perks or views or that sort of thing? Maybe that would be an actual draw. But beyond this, I mean, you look at the list and it's hard not to, from the very thing you were talking about, between the discount at the hotel or, for that matter, getting discounts on general admission for friends and family. I mean, those would probably be two of the top three. Yeah, I would think discounts would be in the top three, depending on which one you prioritize. Mm. Halloween Horror Nights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And discounts on hotels would be, it would be in the top three. That is super interesting. Mm -hmm. All right, Jim. Um, over at Disney, mm -hmm. they also have some surveys. A ton of folks who have recently done the Galactic Star Cruiser mm -hmm. recently have got a new survey from Disney with the following questions, along with the chance to participate in a longer follow-up survey. Mm -hmm. So thanks to Disney Daydreaming for sending in these screen caps. So the questions begin, we recognize that you may have recently seen the following three questions on another survey from us. We appreciate you answering them once again. Mm -hmm. Please rate your overall experience at Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. And this response was excellent. Mm -hmm. And the next question is, upon reflection of your total Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser experience, how did it compare to your expectations before arrival? And Disney Daydreaming uh, answered, it far exceeded my expectations. 
Next question is, Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser represents a new kind of experience at Walt Disney World Resort. In your own words, how would you describe it to someone who has never been before? What words or phrases come to mind that you would use to explain what it is? So Jim, let me ask you this question. Why do they want to know what words you would use to describe it? In a situation like this, with this price point, and given your own experience on board the Halcyon, you enthusiastically evangelized. Oh, yeah. And I think it's got almost uniform praise. I mean, there's always, you know, rough edges, stuff that you can improve. Mm. But overall, mm -hmm. it is very highly rated. But with this price point, and given that this is a fairly specialized market segment you're going after here, mm -hmm. we're now entering the tail end of the first six months of operation, right? We're at uh, four months, right? So March, April, May, and June. So we're in month four. But again, yeah. you're looking over the horizon here, and it's like yeah. your early adopters have done it, and the folks who are diehard Star Wars fans and that sort of thing. But you now are entering that period where you're going to actually have to market. You're, you're going to have to actually sell this thing. Ah, okay, okay. What are the people who are most enthusiastic? How are they describing this? And particularly, how are they describing this to friends and family? And looking to incorporate that language. They're looking to refine their pitch based on what the early adopters thought of the place and what they're, they're telling their friends and family. So you think it's marketing? Got to be. Got to be. But at the same That's time, just remember, we're coming out of the Star Wars celebration where we just learned, for example, that we've got Boba Fett and Fennec Shand suddenly appearing in the Disneyland version of Black Sparrow Outpost. And relatively soon, we're going to see the Mandalorian and, and Grogu also popping up in that park. And there seems to be a course correction going on in regard to... Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Oh yeah, we haven't we haven't talked about this. We should do an entire show on it. But yeah, the uh, the timeline is out the window. Yeah, yeah, and that gets a little problematic given if you think about the show on the Halcyon, which is very timeline locked. Not that necessarily that's a bad thing. Star Wars is a big universe, and more to the fact that Black Spire Outpost is a big place. Just because something that's tied to the, the most recent trilogy is going on at one end of the park doesn't mean that down in the bazaar or in a back alley, you know, Boba Fett can't be hanging out or the Mandalorian yeah. can't be there with Grogu. There's nothing in the Halcyon set, the hotel itself, that would prevent it shifting timelines back to the classic timeline of Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, and Darth Vader. I mean, they could they could do special back-in-time cruises. A number of folks who received the survey were intrigued by who had mailed out the survey that they got, which was that it came from the Disneyland research office rather than Walt Disney. Yeah, that was a typo, but they, they oh, fixed that. Okay. Yeah, they fixed that last night. They actually sent out an email saying it, it says it was from Disneyland. It was really Walt Disney World. All right, because the, there were a number of people who that caught their attention. and Yeah, typo. Yeah, that happens. Okay, that cool. Happens. Um, the, uh, the last question here, and by the way, if any of our listeners get a chance to do this, mm please let us know what they asked. But the last question is this. Uh, thanks for answering those questions. Based upon your answers, you may qualify for an exciting paid research discussion. Mm -hmm. We'll be conducting online focus groups via webcam on Monday, June 20th, continuing through Thursday, June 23rd. The purpose of the discussion is to capture your thoughts and opinions about your recent visit to Galactic Star Cruiser. You'll be speaking with a Disney researcher via webcam for about 90 minutes 
with three to four other participants and would be compensated with a $175 (laughs) Disney gift card after the discussion. So Jim, that tells you the amount of money that they think this is worth. But number two, Mm -hmm. because you're getting a $175 gift card, Disney can then request a binding confidentiality agreement. That's how that works. Okay. And in fact, the next thing is, please note that you'll be asked to to e-sign a standard interview agreement form prior to your discussion. So that's that. What I love about this lead is $175. Anybody who's been to Star Wars. That's worth 20 minutes on the Galaxy <laughs> Star Wars. Or, 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 or to the point, that still doesn't get you a lightsaber. It's like, oh, it doesn't, exactly. oh you're 20 bucks short. <laughs> With which you, you can buy seven-eighths of a lightsaber. There we go. Yeah, exactly. so, uh, By the way, Jim, in the uh, breaking news segment, this happened five minutes ago. Did you see that uh, Disney's fired Peter Rice? Oh, no. Really? Yeah. Super interesting. All right. We'll talk about that on the next show. Yeah. Okay. All right, under listener questions. Uh, here's one from Joe TV. He says, uh, thanks to Christina for the tip about the tomahawk steak at California Grill. It was delicious. Also, a few months back, I wrote in about the Twilight Feast at the Polynesian. And during my trip this week, and that was the week of June 6th, I uh, found that room service has not yet returned to the poly. Keep up the good work. All right, thanks for that, Joe. That's really good. We should have, uh, Jim, we should have Chrissy on to talk about her latest trip to Alani. I'll see if I can. Oh, that would be great. Uh, I am also, she's got to be going to Hoop Dee Doo. First night. Yep. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the first night at Hoop Dee Doo is literally nothing but Disney dish listeners uh, based on the number of emails that I've got on okay. it. Okay. <laughs> good to hear. Good to hear. All right. Here's a question for you, actually, from Joe mm-hmm. from uh, Liz- Lisley, L A S L E, Illinois. Uh, my family and I are planning a Walt Disney World trip for May of 2023. And I was wondering if there's been any news regarding the Play Pavilion that's supposed to replace the old Wonders of Life Pavilion in Epcot. This will be our first trip since my wife and I went there for our honeymoon in 2011. And Epcot is far and away my favorite park. So, Jim, mm, we're less than a year out from May of 2023. What do you think about the Play Pavilion? I wish I had better news about this, but there are so many people within the Disney company who wished the Play Pavilion was already up and running. Because this this was supposed to be sort of the real-time lab for a lot of stuff that Consumer Products wanted to do and, and the various online arms of Disney. And the fact that because of the pandemic and because of different stuff now being prioritized, the Play Pavilion is off the table for at least the next year and a half, two years. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's happening anytime soon. Number one, I don't know that they have any ideas. Number two, you know, and this coming this is part of it. I mean, vaccinations for small kids are not yet widely distributed, yeah, so yeah. difficult to do an indoor. Uh, hands-on, kid-focused mm-hmm. attraction in in that environment. And the folks I've been talking with, what's especially frustrating is that so much of what had already been created for the Play Pavilion, it's kind of the equivalent of opening the Kim Possible exactly, two yeah. years after the show <laughs> is off the air. You know, and that's the thing. It's like, oh, well, great. Let's do a Baymax, you know, I mean, something based on Big Hero 6, the animated series, as opposed to Baymax shorts that are about to debut on Disney+. Plus. It just, exactly. we're out of date, yeah. you know, so... It was uh, it was perfectly acceptable for uh, for the year twenty twenty right that was the idea. There we go. So all right, uh, here's a, an email from Jeff. Mm-hmm. He says, "I haven't seen the friendship boats running between Mexico and Germany at Epcot for a long time. Recently, I noticed that the boat route has been removed from the park map, leaving only the launch from Canada to Morocco. Do you know why the other boat route was discontinued? My sense, Jeff, is staffing that uh, or maintenance. They just don't have the money or the people." 
to run it right now, or there's not demand. We're still on our slow march back to staffing levels, and that coupled with the fact that they share a boat dock area out back with a certain Epcot nighttime show, which yeah. taking up a lot of bandwidth. And that's it too. It could be, it could be harmonious as well, yeah. mm-hmm. right? That it's just getting around all of that is just too too much. It's just probably a combination of things. That's a good point. There we go. By the way, uh, Jim, I don't know if you noticed this, but with attractions like Twilight Zone Tower of Terror and uh, more recently with Alien Swirling Saucers, have you seen that Disney is now bringing down half of an attraction at a time to do maintenance on it? So this tells you two things. Number one, they know that they, they don't have the capacity to bring down an entire attraction at some parks because wait times would just in- increase a crazy amount. But number two, it also probably means that they don't have the staff to do full-on maintenance at any given time. Yeah, but at the same time, to do this, to have half a show down, that's not a great show. No, it's not. And, and it does reduce capacity mm. and stuff. So that's, so that's difficult. Mm. All right, next question from Tony. In the past, did Living with the Land ever include a scene where actual liquid water fell from above to simulate rain. I'm not talking about the shimmering string show effect that currently exists in one of the early scenes, but actual real water falling from above to simulate rain. I distinctly remember this sometime around 2008, perhaps, and it would also explain why the ride vehicles for Living With Land have those canvas tops as well, but no one else seems to recall. So Tony, I had this exact conversation with Laurel a couple weeks ago Mm -hmm. when we were on Living With The Land. Yeah, there was at one time actual rain and it stopped when the parks reopened after the closure for the pandemic, that rain effect was gone. Now, this was in the rainforest section. Yeah, the very beginning of the uh, of the attraction where you're going through mm-hmm. before you get to like the uh, the desert and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There was kind of a really effective cheat in this period in that you heard the rain noise. They alluded to the fact that, you know, when you, when you have heavy rain, you have erosion, you have, you know, remember how the water yeah. was pouring down the sides. Pouring down. Yeah, exactly. And, the, and you see uh, the water going between the roots and stuff like that. You'd see the erosion. Exactly. Yeah. yeah I want to say that there was this interesting half step where they used light and sound to sell you that the rain was happening, but they turned it off, but they kept the water pouring down the sides. So you saw the impact of a heavy rain without the actual heavy rain. And we have that. We have that now. We have the the water running down the streams, like the runoff, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But we don't have rain actually falling. This is interesting. I'm gonna go back and look to see if I can find old video of living with the land back from like the 90s mm-hmm. to see if uh, we can find video proof of this. But yeah, I swear, just like Tony, that at one point there was actual rain falling. That's the wonders of visual effects. But yeah, let's do some research. Let's find out. All right, last question. Uh, This is from Lori, and it also includes Jim, our top tech tip of the week. So here's the email. It says, hi, Lynn and Jim. I'm a longtime Touring Plan subscriber and Disney Dish listener. Any idea what's going on with the Disney website or IT in general? And I'll pause here for laughter, Jim. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's always been terrible, but lately it seems exceptionally bad. There have been many times I can't make reservations or modify them, Mm -hmm. which leads me to 30 plus minutes on the phone. With Strangers, I can always modify reservations on my mom's account. Also, just simple searches for restaurants give me a 502 bad gateway error. All right, so I get this all the time, Lori. In fact, um, the Disney website is is virtually unusable to me mm-hmm. unless I do the following two things. Mm-hmm. So uh, give this a try. One, in your web browser, delete all cookies associated with Disney's domains, and that includes go.com. Oh. So anything with the... The words go.com or Disney in it, just delete all the cookies. 
Um, and the reason for this is I've noticed that uh, sometimes instead of getting a 502 bad gateway error, which is on the server side and says basically, I can't find the server that you've asked for. But sometimes I'll get a web page where I get the header, you know, the Disney World header, but then I just get a little spinner with a completely white screen below that and it just sits there. And that to me is an indication that there's a set of cookies that were stored on your local computer that Disney servers can't handle. And when I uh, delete cookies, Mm -hmm. it works. So it tells me that, I mean, basically what it tells me is, is Disney's putting so much tracking stuff Mm -hmm. on your computer that when it reaches a certain point, there's so much stuff that even their own servers can't figure out what to do. (laughs) Honest to God. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, the second thing, Lori, if that doesn't work, uh, browse in incognito mode, which um, gets rid of all of your cookies and basically allows no tracking. And that always works for me. If it doesn't work, mm-hmm. then it's definitely something on Disney's side. I mean, it's all on Disney's side because they control the cookies too, but uh, incognito mode usually works for me. Excellent advice. I will try that. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim gives us the history of Pioneer Hall and the Hoop-Dee-Doo Review, which returns in the next few days at Walt Disney World. Okay, anyone who listens to this podcast knows, in order to tell a lot of the stories that I regularly share with listeners here, I do a crazy amount of research. And that means subscribing to a frighteningly large number of newspapers and online magazines. Mind you, that's never my plan going in. Each time I sign up for one of these things, I tell myself, I'm just going to do the free trial. And this time, I will remember to cancel after two weeks or 30 days, whatever the free trial period for that publication is. But I almost never get around to actually canceling it. And I know, I know, it's only $7.99 here, maybe $14.95 there. But you'd be amazed how, on a monthly basis, all of those ongoing subscription fees combined can then begin to add up to a very significant chunk of change. Well, Nancy and I have finally decided to do something about our out-of-control subscription situation. That's why we just signed up for Truebill. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and then stop paying for subscriptions you no longer need, want, or or have simply forgotten about. Truebill is, in essence, a subscription monitoring service. It identifies reoccurring monthly payments that maybe you've forgotten about, and with one quick click, Truebill allows you to cancel that now unwanted subscription. And the savings can be considerable. On average, people save upwards of $720 a year whenever they use Truebill. And some folks have saved considerably more than that by using this app. Take, for example, this testimonial from Matthew B., who says, In a matter of seconds, I saved $660 for the year on my DirecTV bill, saved $120 for the year on my SiriusXM bill, saved $840 a year on car insurance. Now, those are the sorts of numbers that get my attention. Likewise, what I really like about Truebill is, well, companies typically make canceling subscriptions hard to do. Where Truebill, they make it incredibly simple. You just link your accounts to this app, and Truebill will help you cancel those now unwanted subscriptions with one tap. Look, everybody's talking about inflation these days, so isn't it time you start doing the more financially responsible thing, which is stop spending and start saving? So don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com slash Disney Dish. Join the more than 2 million Truebill members who've taken back financial control. Go right now. Truebill.com slash Disney Dish. It could save you thousands a year. Again, that's Truebill.com slash Disney Dish. 
Fort Wilderness returns, what, the next couple of weeks? Yep, right? yep. We're 10 days out now from uh, the yep. return to hoop doo In fact, I think it was Chrissy herself who corrected us on that, that it's June 23rd, and Pioneer Herald has been silent for 27 months, Len, but they drop straight back into gear. I mean, there's there's no easing in. I mean, they pick right up where they left off. Three nightly presentations of this beloved musical dinner theater show, 4 o'clock, 6.15, and 8.30. Was there always a 4 o'clock show? I've done it, Len. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where it's like, here, eat a giant meal at four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, and then good night. And is it all senior citizens? Is there a discount? Like, how does the 4 p.m. show? Surprising amount of coleslaw. I was going to say, yeah, there's a, uh, the strawberry shortcake uh, comes with a Geritol <laughs> topping. <laughs> oh. Uh, oh, but only at the four o'clock. All right. Go okay. Ahead. And again, you mentioned that Chrissy's headed first night, and I just want to put you know my order in for that doggy bag of those smoked barbecue pork ribs. You can overnight them. I've seen it happen. Yep. Seriously, on the show, we previously talked about Fort Wilderness, and and you know again, we don't need to go into the history of how like nine months prior to the resort opening in October of seventy one, Dick Nunes is like. You read the brochures. We've been promising a campground for five years. I guess we need to build one. <laughs> I mean, good thing is, is that a campground's relatively straightforward. Well, yeah, but you, you need the money and you need the supplies. In fact, Keith Kembeck, who was a Disneyland veteran who Dick found out had a degree in recreation. So it's like, hey, you're coming with me to Florida. And it's like, oh, cool. Why? Because you're oh, yeah. you're building a campground. Oh, great. What's my budget? Don't don't bother me with with budget. Just go build it. <laughs> Look, these are these are details. <laughs> and, and that was the thing. There was no money. Seriously, Len. At this point, they have just wrestled the contemporary and the Polynesian village away from U.S. Steel, who said, yeah, absolutely, we'll have these hotels open for October, October of 72. But, you know, October, no, that's unacceptable. We're buying you out and we're going to finish this. So Dick's just struggling to find the money and the staff and the time to get the actual themed resorts for Walt Disney would open, never mind the campground. And so Keith was kind of left to his own devices and, and his devices included, hey, it's five o'clock. They're leaving the Magic Kingdom about now. Get the trucks. <laughs> and they would just drive over to the Magic Kingdom construction site and take whatever lumber, you know, and cement. We're building reception center for the campground that we haven't actually made yet. It's a salvage operation oh, at this point. Oh, God, yeah. But they opened seven weeks after the rest of the resort, but it was hit right out of the box. They had, oh, you know, the 200 campsites. But almost 100% occupancy right from the get-go. Really? Oh, God, yeah. You know, in fact, the Disney campground quickly acquired the reputation of one of the very best campgrounds in the United States. I mean, part of it was the price point. It was $11 a night to stay there. But as part of your $11 fee, you got access to the entire Walt Disney World transportation system. So monorails, the launches, the motor coaches. Oh, yeah. People love that. They did. They did. And so given the demand far exceeded supply. How many, uh, how many campsites did they have? 200 when they, they started right off. Oh, geez. 200? Well, again, you, you can understand that poor Keith, the fact that he got 200 of them built. That's right. That's right. Cause he doesn't have the, he doesn't have the concrete to pour the pads. For no, more than that's it exactly. <laughs> 
But they got the first six loops set up and running. And it was a very big deal when they announced uh, October of 72, Disney World celebrating its first anniversary. And one of the items, you know, the between mentioning, hey, we're getting Thompson Island up out of the ground and, you know, our paddle wheel boat and, you know, mm -hmm. and Pirates is coming. And, oh, by the way, we are more than doubling the size of the campground. They're putting in an additional 300 sites. All right. So that would bring them to 500. Yeah. But here's... Okay, so, so hold on. So... Um, so right today they're at what, eight hundred? Oh yeah. Did they have the cabins then as well? Well, no. Or, the cabins came okay. in later. In fact, okay, at, right. at one point they announced that. In fact, the language they used is that there were sites for as many as twelve hundred uh, Atlanta for, for twelve hundred campsites. In fact, okay, because there's there's eight hundred campsites right now, and how many cabins? Oh, gotta be two hundred, three hundred. Those came in later, and. That's where the branding of Fort Wilderness got interesting because, you know, these days you, you fire up your search engine and go to Walt Disney World and type in Fort Wilderness and mm -hmm. you get the message to the effect of the cabins at Fort Wilderness and the campsites at Fort Wilderness and uh, two very different price points, two very different pitches. Same amenities, though. Speaking of the amenities, it's the fall of 72. At this point, Walt Disney World managers are noticing an interesting phenomenon that guests who are staying at the Contemporary and the Poly are making special trips over to Fort Wilderness just to check the place out. Now, mind you, there's not really a lot to see at this point. You got yeah. a handful of campsites and a trading post. But the Imagineers have noticed that, look, people are coming over here. They're interested. They want to see this place. So they put together a plan. And if you remember your layout of, of Fort Wilderness, you have your reception center right up at the edge of property where people drive in, you get your map, you pick up you know, all of your registration info, and then you drive down to the campsites. And then there's this rather long hike down to the waterfront. And there was this chunk in the middle that had where the Tri-D Circle Ranch where the horses that pulled the trolleys on Main Street, that's where they schlepped them back and forth each day. And yep. this is also where the petting zoo was. And the notion was you had this chunk in the middle with the Tri-D that, you know, we should do something with that. So the decision is made that this is where they're going to build what they called the settlement. But to facilitate development of the settlement, what they decide to do is build a three-mile round-trip steam train route that will take guests from reception all the way down to the waterfront. Then there'll be various stops for different loops of camping. But the big deal is that they will also stop at the settlement. And the first part of the settlement is Pioneer Hall. Very big deal. I mean, hand-fitted pine logs from Montana, 70 tons of stone brought up from the Carolinas. This facility gets up and running for April 1st of 74. But the interesting thing, Len, if you look through any of the press materials that are done during this period, there is absolutely no mention of hoop de doo There is talk of, oh, Pioneer Hall will have a 250-seat steakhouse where ranch-style barbecues will be offered, a 150-seat snack bar, a couple of theme shops, and an arcade for after-hour recreation. 
And if you dig, dig, dig down in the press release, they do mention that, you know, this new service-oriented campground complex will have a stage for musical stage shows, but nothing, you know. Uh, they, All they, right, so they, they don't say whether it's indoors or outdoors, whether no. it's going to be scheduled, and it's no. definitely not integrated in with this 250-seat steakhouse idea, right? No, not at all. So you mentioned the the train, and mm-hmm. we've alluded to the train before at Fort Wilderness, but mm-hmm. something that's never been clear to me is, mm-hmm. was the train supposed to be the primary mode of transportation to get guests from check-in to their campsites? Like you're supposed to carry luggage and stuff on that? Or it was just like, this is a fun thing to do to get you around the resort. The steam train at Walt Disney World, there were four of them, Len. Oh, geez. Each of the trains could pull five cars, which could then in turn carry 90 passengers. So when you're working the math there, it's like, that's really not a whole lot of people. It's cute. It's decorative. It's a fun kinetic. But the mm-hmm. very thing you're talking about, the notion of, well, can you know, I grab my, my suitcase and my tent and yeah, can I go okay. down to my site? And it's like, well, no, not really. But for folks who were driving into the parking lot and looking for a way to get deeper down into Fort Wilderness, it was a fun way to travel. In a weird sort of way, it was neither fish nor fowl as far as the transportation system They installed it the summer of 73. They began testing it in the fall, and Disney's own railroad people were like, you guys rushed this. We should have done a better job with this. But on the other hand, it's like, look, we've invested. This has to go. So Christmas week of 73, January 1st of 74, it gets up and running, and it's plagued with issues almost from day one. But remember, you know, you built this system because you want people to go to the settlement because Pioneer Hall is only the first stake in the ground. Annual report talks about by next summer, Fort Wilderness Steam Train will connect the campground's reception area and its waterfront recreation facilities with the Fort Wilderness Stockade and Western Town, where complete dining, shopping, and entertainment facilities will be built in phases. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And then they go on to say that a year or so after Western Town opens at Fort Wilderness, the Imagineers then want to build the Fort Wilderness Swimming Hole, a major recreational facility. Okay. we well, that got done. Well, yeah, but again, then on the other side of what eventually became known as River Country, mm-hmm. they wanted to build a fun house. It would have been located on site there at Fort Wilderness, just a, a short walk away from Pioneer Hall. It would have featured show scenes designed by Mark Davis, and it would have been housed in this eccentric-looking mat- mansion that would have been called The Roost. Oh, and this was like the one of the original ideas for Haunted Mansion, right, which Mark Davis worked on. It was a walkthrough sort of like House of Oddities. It definitely had a early Haunted Mansion vibe. And in fact, the folks who built the mansion mm-hmm. did appear in ghost form throughout the house. Wow. By the way, if you're interested in this at all, the two-volume set of Mark Davis's concept art by uh, Pete Doctor and Chris Merritt has pages and pages of stuff that Mark did for this in 74. Really? Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Oh, I got to go back and look at it because I, I, uh, I only skimmed the Mark oh. Davis book, which, by the way, is fantastic. Like anyone is a... Uh, Disney theme park fan should definitely own the uh, the Mark Davis book. I've never heard of this though, Jim. I don't. I, I missed it. Is there any Disney hotel that actually has an attraction? Well, this was the thing that they had yeah, discovered wow. that Fort Wilderness folks who were vacationing at Walt Disney World had begun to think of Fort Wilderness 
as a destination within the resort. In fact, you yeah. know, had they gone forward with construction of the roost, which supposedly would have been up and running by summer of 77, the year after River Country opened, again, the idea is that had to be open for America's bicentennial. What Walt Disney World officials envisioned was they would literally be able to sell a special Fort Wilderness ticket book to people who were vacationing at Walt Disney World. So this is what they envisioned as a full day of fun at Fort Wilderness. Say you're staying at the Contemporary. Okay, so okay. you go go outside. Yes, you could take a launch from there. But let, let's say you climb in a motor coach, you drive up over to the reception area at Fort Wilderness. You then get off the bus and you get on the train, which then takes you down to the campground settlement area. That's already an attraction in and of itself. There we go. As we know from the Skyliner, right? Okay. All right. So you you spend your morning swimming at Fort Wilderness. You and the family finish at River Country. You walk back up to Crockett's Tavern, you know, get a, a quick service meal. You then wander over and explore the roost. You also have okay. the option of, say, hiking on one of Fort Wilderness nature trails or visiting the petting zoo. <laughs> you, you and I have done this. <laughs> yes. Yes, we have. But at the same time, you also have the option of going horseback riding. You then catch a performance of the Hoopity Do review at Pioneer Hall. You do a little souvenir shopping at Frontier Town and maybe wander around the stockade, which is very much like the fort out on Tom Sawyer Island. We're now at dusk, so you walk down to the waterfront at Bay Lake at dusk, and you catch a presentation of the electrical water pageant. Oh, yeah, okay. And then you grab the train and head back up to the reception area and grab a motorcade back to your hotel. That's a that's a full day. That's a full day. Yeah. I love the idea. And so did the managers at Disney because they were like, this is during the era when you sell a ticket book to folks who get into the Magic Kingdom and the notion right. of, wow, we can sell them an additional ticket book that's strictly about for wilderness and because and and you know they have to spend the day there because well i got a ticket here to go into the roost so you know we're not going back without going into that but anyway this is the plan as of the fall of 73 but then of course the arab oil embargo happens and then attendance levels at walt disney world fall off by 20 percent and that's largely because the folks who used to drive down to walt disney world are now concerned that, well, what if I start on this journey? And, you know, I mean, remember, we're in the middle of even odd gas rationing, you know, at that point, and there are gas stations that were running out of gas. And it was like, what if I start down on this trip and can't get the gas I need to complete the journey? And the Arab oil embargo had a huge impact on, on Fort You know, we were talking about how well they did, what the demand was, and how even when they built the the 300 new campsites, that that there there was still in huge demand. Heading into 73-74, suddenly Fort Wilderness is having issues because, of course, if you're hauling a trailer down there, and again, you're worried about gas. So occupancy rate at the campground falls off by, you know, down to 70%. And as a result, the managers there get spooked. So they table a lot of the things that were planned for the the settlement area. The stockade and Western Town gets put on hold. Likewise, the roost. And the only reason in the face of the Arab oil embargo that River Country actually got built is they had already 
ordered the 2,500 feet of flume. Oh, we don't, we'd already bought it, so now we're going to go through with it. Yeah, no, this is exactly. It was still on its way. So that does then get built. But if we jump ahead now to the, the annual report for the tail end of 74, talking about Pioneer Hall. It's like Pioneer Hall, a major entertainment restaurant and arcade facility opened in March and soon established itself as a popular guest attraction and profitable operation. Ooh. Now, you'd never get these sorts of stats out of the modern day Walt Disney Company, but it says twice as many guests come from the resort hotels to attend the dinner show at Pioneer Hall than from the campground itself. Oh, I'm sure that's still true. Wow. Okay. And the reason why you know this, just as a hint, is mm-hmm. Jim, we just we just talked about minivans returning to mm-hmm. Walt Disney World. But yep. remember, one of the things that the minivans can do that regular guests can't is drop you off directly at Pioneer oh, Hall. That's right. You can and sneak and that's in that a huge way. advantage to guests staying mm-hmm. at Disney resorts because it really cuts down on the transportation time needed. So Disney would only do that. Mm-hmm. Because it's an extra expense, right? Disney would only do that mm-hmm. if a significant number of guests were actually coming from outside of Fort Wilderness to go to Hoopty Doo. Excellent. And that, that, that tells you that it's, it's still true. Okay. Well, just as we close things out here, it's, it's important to know that Disney didn't entirely abandon its plan to turn Fort Wilderness into a day-long vacation destination. When River Country opens on July 19th, 1976, this five-acre water park starts drawing, on average, 4,700 people a day, Len. Wow, that's that's good. I mean, for a, for a water park? But here's the thing that fascinated Disney, that, you know, they're, they're like, oh, geez, 4,700 people going over to River Country. What's going to happen at the Magic Kingdom? And, you know, so they figure, we're going to see a downtick, you know, because obviously people are going over there. No. The Magic Kingdom attendance levels stay rock solid. And it's like, wow. are you telling me 5,000, you know, nearly 5,000 people are coming into the resort just for the day to go to this water park? Do you know what Disney would do today for an additional 5,000 people per park? Uh, <laughs> I'm not saying they would sell their children, but I'm saying they would at least look at the at the market. <laughs> Kick the tires as it there were. There we go. I mean, little <laughs> Billy's got some miles on him. but you know, it's like- say, Exactly. He doesn't eat much. He's small. He's got a bright future ahead of him. <laughs> But immediately it's like, wow, okay, so what do we do? Can we expand River Country? And so the 76 annual report mentions Imagineers are are making plans for more water rides, an additional raft ride, or maybe a two-man boat ride. Likewise, to handle the crowds that are now pouring into Fort Wilderness every day, the the Imagineers actually revisit the idea of a frontier town, again, with the notion of developing the land that stretched between Pioneer Hall and River Country. But... Again, remember, this is 75, you know, 75, 76, 77. Yeah, they're starting to talk. Yeah. They're talking Epcot. And it's just the whole notion of it's like, look, it's great that we have this new profit center for River Country because, frankly, we need the money for building Epcot. But the downside of the success of River Country is that if you talk with folks who who loved the Fort Wilderness Railroad, this is the straw that broke the camel's back. The number of guests who were coming in every day who were using this system to move back and forth through uh, Fort Wilderness meant that, you know, there were far longer lines at the individual stations for yeah. each of the camp loops and 
It was one of those things. It was a lovely idea on paper, and more to the point, there's some some beautiful paintings and posters that were created. Yeah, for I'd love to see the concept art for Frontier Town. There's a couple of pieces out there. I'll tell you what, I'll I'll send it so we can include it in the show notes. But yeah, let's do that. There is wonderful art of the stockade. But the one that's really intriguing, in fact, it, it, it circles back on the steakhouse idea. Pioneer Hall was doing so well at this point that they actually kicked the tires of a second dinner theater experience. And the notion was that, picture this, Len, you're in a western town, but to one side of the street is kind of an open restaurant where you can sit outside in sort of a corral setting and look at the rest of the town. Sure. And across the street is, you know, what looks like the saloon and there's the blacksmith shop and that sort of thing. But instead of, you know, you know the standard opening of Pioneer, the show at Pioneer Hall, where you hear the stagecoach? Stagecoach, yeah. Okay, this show actually started off with a really for real stagecoach rolling up the street. Oh, and then you could link the two together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, but the thing was, they would do things like the facades of the buildings would go up like window shades, and so you could look into the saloon, and somebody, the dance hall girls would be singing and dancing in there, and then the barbershop quartet would literally come out of the barbershop. But you could have 500 people sitting outside watching the show at any one time. Oh. And it would take the pressure off of Pioneer Hero, which again, that's the moment I particularly kind of enjoy at Hoopty Doo when it is creeping up on six o'clock. And, you know, it's like you know, to the effect of, oh, well, I'm so glad you had a good time. Get out. <laughs> You know, we loved you. I really appreciate that you're here. But seriously, the 650 crowd, you know, we need to get him in here. We need to turn these tables. Yeah, you know. That, that. Not exactly Southern hospitality is what I'm hearing. <laughs> but still, what a great idea. And so, so far along in development. But I, mm. I get the point that, you know, given that they have a finite amount of people, time and money to spend, mm. that things like Epcot would get, uh, or, you know, uh, water parks themselves would get, mm. uh, you know, the attention. So. But every so often you see Disney pivot back to Fort Wilderness and it's like, oh, we are leaving money on the table. I mean, oh, yeah, you know, no, how many no. times have we talked about reflections? You have all of these people who have happy memories of having camped at one of the loops, yeah. at, but now have a little bit more money and frankly don't want to sleep on the ground. You know, so it's yeah. like, <laughs> you know, hey. I do, I do it like once every 10 years just to remind myself of it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, immediately camping. head back into the, yeah, where's my Craftmatic adjustable bed? So Exactly. So, followed up by, by a uh, booking at the Census Spa at the Grand Floridian. There you go. So That's fantastic. That's a great story, Jim. Thank you. I'm always fascinated by burrowing down into 70s Disney World history because there is yeah. just so much what might have been. And so much they could have done, yeah. yeah. So Fantastic. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please help support our show and Jim Hill Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. On next week's show, it's the anniversary of Disneyland's Monsanto House of the Future. And Jim will have all of the details. We're also recording a new Bandcamp exclusive on the Crane Company Bathroom of Tomorrow at Disneyland. Jim, you just can't get this, the, this content anywhere else. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, Len, but it's, it, was, okay. it was funny because I, I was looking at something around the House of the Future, you know, just sort mm -hmm. of as background material, and I came across this set of articles about the history of metal kitchen cabinet fabrication, which has a link to Disneyland, but also one of the major 
um, vendors of this was in my old hometown of Youngstown, Ohio. In fact, the line was called like the Youngstown line of metal kitchen cabinets. So we have to wow. link all of this in together at some point. Okay. Well, that, that I will do some digging and see what we can pull out of Youngstown. Awesome. Awesome. All right, folks, you can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, whose 3D audio art installation, Old Man Describing a Staircase, will make its U.S. debut on Saturday, June 25th at the uh, Kamano Island Summer Solstice Art, Beer, and Wine Festival 2022 on Sunrise Boulevard in beautiful downtown Kamano Island, Washington. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.